It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Mount Whitney tonight. Oh, nice. See? Yeah, look at that. Mount Whitney. Your your whiskey's touching the finest finest Tetons outside of the Tetons. Mm-hmm. Um, how's it going, Andrew? Chris, life is good. It is a summer swing. We've got travel plans coming up. Uh, you just got back from a trip. How was that? I did get just get back from a trip. It was great. It was uh, towing the camper around. The uh, the West, mostly at Wyoming, we did we did like touch into Montana, um, but literally like barely across the border to Cook City, which is on the north side of Yellowstone. Three of us and ten nights in the camper, and that was pretty pretty rad. It was it was enough. <laughs> we came home a couple of days early, just you know things were running out of gas, um, yeah, and uh, we were filthy and like it was get, it was pretty hot at the end and. Yeah, so we ended up banging banging home a little, just a little bit early though. But we we held out pretty good for for that kind of trip with a six year old. Yeah, um, that's intense. Yeah, so went up and joined up with a friend of mine and his family, Whit Magro, up in Cook City, uh, just on the other side of Yellowstone, and uh, it was kind of cool, which we didn't anticipate. But Yellowstone was closed, or at least that those entrances on that side were closed from the flooding, which we had not planned on going into Yellowstone anyway. But it meant that the whole area was dead. Like nobody oh, yeah. was up there. And it's normally just like fucking bonkers right now from what everybody was telling us. So um, so we were rolling into campgrounds that would normally have, you know, we would have had to get like a six-month reservation for it. And oh, the wow. camp hosts were like, oh, yeah, no, there's stuff because people are canceling or they're not showing up or whatever. So, so it turned cool. out to be really great. And, and one of the awesome things was is that the – um, it's, it's like on one of these Harley tour kind of zones, like they go to the black Hills and Sturgis and all that shit. And then they go through there and, and yeah. So apparently like every day, all day, it's just like miles of Harleys going by, which, you know, is great for your outdoor experience when, when those thundering pieces of shit roll by. So, um, yeah, so that was nice cause they were pretty much not around either. So, um, in little packs they were, but. Um, no yeah, leather so daddies. Had, yes, exactly. It's so funny, huh? <laughs> like the crossover in costuming with the gay community and the <laughs> in the Harley community. It's like yeah. something no one talks about, you know? Um, yeah, it's just interesting. <laughs> You're like, am I, am I in Provincetown or on uh, <laughs> Highway Six? Mm-hmm. Anyhow, um, but yeah. So, and but the the thing I wanted to bring up from the trip was that we I had. You know, these I, I had these two very des- disparate. I, I tried to use this word last time I talked about this. Disparate, right? It doesn't matter. Okay. Desperate and disparate experiences climbing. So one day I went um, trad climbing in this place that that um, will remain unnamed. But like serious. Because it's a secret crag. It's a secret crag. And, you know, despite That's my just- feelings about secret crags, it's not my secret crag. Yeah, I was gonna say it's not it's not a secret. It's just you know we're in Montana. It's on the DL. Um, I don't need to piss. We're off also Montana. responsible media people who, exactly. who don't blow up uh, crags needlessly. Yeah. So anyhow, it's not important where it was. The experience was the important part because what we went and did was climbed a big multi pitch track climb on uh, granite, 
and I hadn't trad climbed and I, I started to figure it out. It'd been a couple years and that is discluding Indian Creek. Um, because as many, many people know from listening to me elsewhere, I don't really consider that like pure trad climbing. Um, yeah. It's sport climbing on cracks with cams and as far as I'm concerned. So this was like big multi-pitch stuff, full day out. Um, and then, you know, later in the trip, we ended up over there at 10 Sleep. And so then we went like all the way to the other experience. So we went into this place where we had to go in and get across this river and we had to like, you know, worry about grizzly bears. You know, we had literally had, you know, bear spray with us and all that sort of thing and be out there on, I mean, I was on siding the pitches. Um, uh, the guy I was with was, was familiar the with the route. route. Yeah. On the trad route. And then we turned around and went over to 10 sleep. And I mean, I think it's probably one of the most kind of manicured climbing experiences out there in a lot of ways. And, it's kind uh, of like the gym climbing of sport climbing. Yeah, a little bit. You know, it's just it's just really friendly. At least at least a lot of the crags. I mean, we can talk about that later. But um, but yeah, you know, it's like this casual start thing, and you go out and you bang out a few pitches, and you know, hang out, hobnob at the base of the cliff. You know, it's like everybody's around. There's dogs. There's kids. There's like all the things. And so um, it was a completely different. Exp- what what happened on the on the trad climbing is that like. We got up there and, and it was my turn to lead and it was like an 11B, 11C type pitch. Um, and like, I just like got completely maxed and I, I wasn't using my rack. And so I was like a little bit confused because it was a lot of different gear I wasn't used to. And so I was like pulling pieces off. I mean, in the pitch, <laughs> I probably like miss, I probably grabbed the wrong gear like 12 times and uh, I got super gripped. I got super pumped. You know, it was just, it wasn't like a straightforward crack. It was all these different cracks that you were moving back and forth to. And, and, uh, like, I just like flopped onto the belay, like completely gassed on what would, you know, I think like, like said 11 BC kind of somewhere in there. So mid five eleven, and, um, it just, and then, you know, I went over to 10 sleep like two days but you later. Sent, you, you did the pitch. You I did it. send the pitch. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't hang on anything, but like I, there, there, there's this really loud river there. So it was good. Cause my partner couldn't hear me. I whimpering and yelping and, <laughs> and you know, and, uh, <laughs> anyway, so then I, you know, then a few days later we go over to tent sleep and it's like, I don't even think twice about trying, you know, a 12, a middle five twelve route, like a full number of great harder. Like I don't even think about it. And, yeah. uh, and for the most part I was successful on, on all these things without, you know, digging too deep especially psychologically like i'm sure i'd mess up roots or i'd mess up uh moves and fall off or whatever but it wasn't like this big psychological challenge and so like the the three days apart or three or four days apart of these two experiences like just kind of reminded me you know for all the kind of like you know dissing of like tradies we do like how much more goes into that kind of climbing, especially on a multi-pitch route. And it's, and again, especially on siding. And, uh, I just, I don't want to like, I'm not here to like toot my own horn because like my performance was, was somewhat dismal despite not falling off, but just like to kind of give a little props out to the folks out there who, you know, 
who dedicate themselves to that and maybe they read about all these hard grades or they go to a sport climbing area and, and it's not their style and, and they get pummeled while kids are like, you know, climbing 513 around them and, and, uh, and sort of feel bad about themselves. But I want to give a little props out to those folks because it's a whole different experience and there's so much more that goes into it. That's, um, th- that's kind of just forgotten in light of the grades, you know? Yeah. What you're saying is so interesting because there's this timeless aspect to trad climbing that doesn't appear to be too susceptible to the general progression and trajectory of climbing difficulty and performance. Um, you know, like sport climbing, it's fair to say that five twelve, you know, 20 years or 30 years ago was like a big deal, you know, not cutting edge, not whatever, but like you, you were kind of like a hot shot if you could climb five twelve at a sport crag. And today that's like a, a laughable statement. Like no one, there's like few people who can't climb 512, or at least it seems that way if you go to certain walls. But, you know, like 510 trad appears to have like survived the last 30 years of climbing progression of being like still quite difficult and uh, something that you could never kind of just thumb your nose at, which is interesting, right? It's like kind of like, yeah. yeah. So I think that's what you're getting at right there. Yeah, totally. And, and you know, I get, I get like caught up in it as well, you know? Yeah not not in the media but also in my personal climbing to think that you know i get it in my head that i should just have no problem climbing you know certain 511 trad and and, but then you know if i take a step back and and think about like even like 11 plus you know like 11d depends on where you're at and what what kind of grading system they're using but like that's serious business and and you know it's it's funny, and like what you said about five ten trad, you know, uh, you, you go up on like the the rostrum or something, and there's that five ten off with pitch on it. Uh, that that's still the one people talk about when they do the rostrum, even though the there's a harder pitches on there. But that pitch is still got this like reputation in the middle of this whatever seven or eight pitch route with you know other five eleven pitches on it. Um, people talk about that damn five ten pitch, you know. <laughs> And like when people solo it, I'm like, oh, like they had to solo that 510 pitch, you know, because it, it feels like the, the 11C lock or fingers is probably like a, a more, uh, you know, sort of comfortable solo than the this weird 510 kind of off with leaning thing that's in the middle of it somewhere. It's more than a grade, right? It's like a style of climbing. There's like a grovelly, insecure like style of trad climbing that um, is a technique and a skill that you have to get really good at. And it's never going to ever feel like just casual. Like it always Mm -hmm. just feels a little bit like you have to put in effort to do it. Like Mm -hmm. that's what kind of makes trad climbing like a timeless thing is that you have, it's not about the grade. It's about the, it's about being able to like move through that kind of terrain and do it, do it somewhat proficiently, but you're always going to be a little maxed out. And if you're climbing a route on site that you've never done before, you know, you have to figure out the gear, you have to figure out where the route goes. And, you know, you've, if it's a multi-pitch, you're hauling ropes up, burning all those extra calories, just doing mm-hmm. all the in-between crossovers from the belays. And so you get to the top of these things and you're just like, you feel worked in a way that you don't feel worked if you've climbed 513 you know, sport all day at your, at your local comfort zone. Well, the thing too, that is, is like not really understood by people who don't do it. And again, going to multi-pitch track climbing is that it's like, you don't really think about the fact that, you know, with a sport climb, 
in between tries, like you're literally just like chilling and you're walking around and you're eating whatever you want and you're just like smoking cigarettes. Yeah. Or whatever <laughs> it is you want to do. It's like when you're doing a multi-pitch climb, you know, it's like the tank is losing gas the higher and higher you go. And even if, you know, the climbing is not super hard, you're uncomfortable on the blade, you can't stretch out, you can't do any of the things you just routinely do in between burns, sport climbing. And it's a big deal to climb, let's say again, 5'11", like seven, eight pitches up, you know, aside from the exposure and things like that. And the other thing about it is it's like, to me, and this is why I've always held this attitude, because it brings so much stuff in, into it, the mental part, the, the engineering part of understanding your gear, where it goes, how to place it quickly, all those sorts of things, plus your climbing skills. To me, and I think to track climbers who like are dyed in the wool, it feels like it holds all the things that are offered by climbing versus you know these sort of more specialized or more specific aspects like bouldering or like um, you know sport climbing. Because it's just like, yeah, even root finding. Like is root finding really a thing on a sport climb? not in the same way, you know, it's like finding where the holds are and which one you grab next, but it's not like you're going to just climb off into nowhere and and get stuck some out on something that you weren't supposed to be on. It's like the bolts tell you kind of where the fuck to go. So, yeah. And I mean, I just kind of, again, feel like, you know, we're involved in this too, of like kind of laughing at track climbing occasionally, but the other half of it is to sort of tip our hats to, uh, to the skill involved, (laughs) that goes with it, you know? Yeah. I think that's such a good message. It gets lost of course, and all in mm-hmm. the way that media gets spoken about and discussed and climbing where it's all about grades and difficulty and pushing limits and stuff. And it's a, it's a timeless message. You know, it's like, yeah. this is, this is actually legit and this is hard. And what's cool is like, I think just to your experience, like it's been a few years since you'd, you'd had that experience. And, and this was probably, that was probably the most memorable day of your of your 10 day trip or whatever. It was the most memorable, like 20 minutes. Right. Like, well, and and it took me longer to lead the pitch, but that was like the meat of it. I was like dicking around up there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. No, it just had me going like so deep to try to get up this thing. Um, so yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's, it's a cool, I guess if there's a message here or something to impart to our listeners, it's to, it's to, um, seek out those experiences, even if it's like once a year, or once every mm-hmm. two years, you know, like go, go get scared on a five ten trad route, you know, that even if you're climbing like five thirteen or whatever, go, go spend, like, <laughs> go spend a day, like trying to get up something that's like really obscure and, or just hard or it's just five ten yeah. trad or it's just a normal five ten trad you you will be challenged by it so yeah and um, it's i mean you saying that so i i i mean I, my brain's just going all over the place but like like i you know if i was going to a sport climbing area to warm up i wouldn't even do a five ten mm-hmm. like if i was on a true warm-up to like climb something harder i'd go straight to 511 and not even yeah. think about it you know and and uh, even on this route, like the five ten pitches, yeah, they they were ready to go. Like you, I was like, okay, here I go again. Like this right. is, you know, I, I got to dig try. dig in again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's totally cool. And the other thing is is what you said about five twelve is really this is something I've said to a lot of people over the years um, because again, like climbing twelve B twelve C, that's sort of like you've graduated a little bit as a sport climber into into you know the first kind of steps towards harder climbing but if you're someone if you're a climber 
who can go on to, let's say, a multi-pitch route on whatever, granite, sandstone, and on-site 512 on the reg, you are a top-level fucking climber. Like, that ability just to for sure or almost for sure be able to on-site like 12C trad any day, five pitches, 10 pitches up in Yosemite or or in, in you know, the Black Canyon or any of these other big, big climbing venues, you're a top level climber. Cause it's not, it's, that's not normal. And that's not something you should just be like, Oh yeah, that's what I should be doing. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can think of people who can, I mean like the Josh Wharton's of the world, yeah. but Josh he, Wharton he, is a fucking good climber and he's one of the top climbers right. in the United States, you know? I mean, he also and, climbs 514 sport. Right. Know? So he's like, but yeah, he's, he's one of those few people who I think has that skill who, who can like go, go climb 512 in, in Patagonia or Yosemite or wherever it is, but yeah, but there's, you know, consistently, but it, there's not many people like him. Yeah. Like Nico Favras and of course, um, Sean Villanueva Driscoll, but you know, even those guys, you, you, depending on the conditions after red point, a lot of those hard pitches on their roots. So yeah, mm-hmm. again, like the grades kind of like get lost in sport climbing to what it actually means, um, to be fiddling gear in on, on something hard like that is, it's a serious skill and um yeah it, it, and i'm sure again, all of that was just underscored by the the um difference in intense sleep where you know it has like this reputation as we've kind of mocked and joked about in the past on this show of being a soft climbing area um you know i'm sure whatever it was 11b or c you know in intense sleep wasn't didn't quite you know deliver that uh that ex- same experience that you had on this arena. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, and, but that just goes with a lot of sport climbing too. Um, yeah. but, but yeah, it, it, and again, the psychological thing of leaving the ground on a, you know, 70 foot, 80 foot sport climb, knowing the grade, seeing the bolts, you know, being able to walk away from the cliff and look at where the holds are and get the rest. I mean, it's all these little things that go with sport climbing that you don't get to do on a wall. I mean, even the pitch I did, it's like, you go up and you traverse out this roof and then turn this corner and that's where the, the meat is. And I couldn't see it, you know, yeah. it's like, you just, you just headed up out that way. And somewhere along the line, there's a hard move that I can't see, you know, or whatever. So yeah, it's just uh, it was kind of fascinating. I thought about it all day actually. Um, after I got, like I said, I got kind of almost beat up on that thing. So. Yeah. One thing I'm thinking right now is, you know, I've, I've kind of referenced how, um, you know, I've, I've tried to bring out the, the sort of the meaning in, in the sport climbing experience through writing and through encouraging people to write about sport climbing and in a way that has that kind of literary quality that you find in more epic styles of, of climbing pros. And, you know, there's, there's different experience or like each of these disciplines has kind of like peak or pinnacle experiences to them and you know with sport climbing it's often found in the red point where Mm -hmm. you've worked on something for you know months or years even and you ultimately do it and you go through this whole journey of trying to do a a really really hard sport climb with track climbing it is more peak experience in the on-site it is more about the the that first you know first touching that route and first trying to do all of the things that are, that make trad climbing hard, the route finding, 
you know, being able to read the climb, being able to hang on and maybe not even the ideal spot. Like you spend 10 minutes like fiddling around with a nut when there's a jug, you know, three moves away from you that you could have placed a, a nice cam next to. And that goes with the territory. That's why that's why the five tens and five elevens are are so much harder than their grade suggests. Um, but it adds to that that sense that 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 like peak experience that you had, which is this is a grade that you can on site every day of the week if it's a sport route, but as a as a trad climb and then just kind of being out of practice with the trad climbing headspace, you know, it was like it really kind of pushed you to the limit. It, it left you with this like really satisfying satisfying thing that made um everything else on that trip just kind of seem incidental so again i didn't want to like talk about how rad i was but um dude you're just that's that's the whole that's the whole theme of the show (laughs) but just you know like give a little love out to the tradsters tradsters we're we're behind you we might make fun of you but um but we know what you're up to and it's rad respect Connor Hurston is best known for free climbing the nose of El Cap at age 15. Check out episode 11 for our interview with Connor about the nose back then. Today, he returns to the show to tell us about redpointing one of the hardest rock climbs ever led on gear. How many return guests have we had, Andrew? Is, is Connor one of our first? I wouldn't say first, but definitely yeah. a, a single digit guests yeah. have returned to yeah. the run out at this point. And um, yeah, we're super psyched to have Connor Herson back on the show. You may not recognize his voice if, if you haven't caught up on on uh, on what Connor's been doing lately. But the what was it like two or three years ago? We talked to you just after you free climbed the nose. Um, yeah, that was almost four years ago, I think. Four years ago. Okay. You were yeah. 15. How old are you right? now? Are you? Yeah. So. I'm nine, I turned 19 four days ago. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, so it's four, like three and a half, four years ago. Yeah. Three and a half. Yeah. yeah three and a half ish. Yeah. Yeah. A lot has changed. I'm like six inches taller. <laughs> deeper voice. That was one of the things that we talked about on the last, um, the last time you were on the show was just how the beta was so unique for you on the nose. Um, yeah. Being, you know, like a little kid basically. And so now what? You're six inches taller probably weigh a bit more too finished high school <laughs> like <laughs> lots is new well the the thing that i think um stands out of that whole i mean the whole part of you doing the nose back then and i was trying to explain it to my partner today like she's like who are you interviewing i said oh, connor herson and then yeah he was on the show before when he freed the nose and then i talked about how like it was just so rad that you were basically a weekend kid in between school out there, like trying to free, you know, do one of the hardest big walls in the world, showing up on the weekends, having to do your homework on the way home, you know, popping back into class on Monday morning, track practice, the whole thing. And, and meanwhile, there were, you know, obviously there's always several professional climbers, full-time climbers, like gunning for that thing. And so I just remember that part of the story because I also taught high school. And in fact, I taught sophomores which you would have been probably a sophomore at that time. I was a freshman, but yeah. Oh, you were a freshman still. Yeah. yeah. So, but either way, like I taught kids your age. And so I just loved the image of one of my students like disappearing for the weekend and coming back, like having sent the nose to seem like the coolest thing. But um, it seemed like kind of a storybook climbing childhood. You, uh, you know, what, what part of that fuels you to this day now that you're away from home and you're out of high school, but um, you still have the legacy of climb with your dad and, 
Um, where, yeah. where, what does that look like now? Um, right now it's definitely nice because I feel like with, you know, when, when I had school, uh, I mean, I'm going to college this fall, so I'm gonna, the whole weekend or things not going anywhere. Right. Uh, but when I was still in school, I feel like I kind of learned to maximize my time in the Valley or even in the gym from time to time, learning to like, just maximize the time that I have there. Um, is something that I think was really useful and I'm really excited to kind of do the same in college. And I mean, I don't know how that's going to work out, but we'll see. We brought you on the show because you've, you've been doing a bunch of like great sending that we're going to get into, but, um, I'm, I'm curious to just like dwell on the, on the nose story a bit longer because it's a fun thing to think about, like how that impacted your high school, you know, long-term because we, we probably spoke to you, you know, within the month or two that you had done the route. How did, you know, being this kind of nationally recognized climber impact your high school, you know, in sophomore, junior and senior year, or did it at all? Was that something that was kind of on the radar for your classmates or teachers or do you feel like you got, um, recognized or was that something that you had to deal with in, in just like your social interactions in school? I think climbing still a small enough sport that there weren't very many other climbers at school and the ones that were, they were more gym climbers. So it wasn't really that big a deal. Was just, I just kind of kept going to school and my close friends knew. And then like, like I wrote about that in one of my college essays, which I had my um, English teacher look at. So it has come up, but it's just kind of like one of those things that, you know, it's not, it wasn't that big a deal for someone who's only heard about Cap through watching Free Solo. Did you have any teachers who, you know, like gave you like a bad grade on a paper, but but their comments were like D minus, but good job on the nose. <laughs> um, I don't think I've gotten a D minus on any papers, fortunately. Yeah, I was going to say, Andrew, I was about to break in here. This guy was not a D minus student, Andrew. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, you never know. You can be a D minus student and still be successful in life. I just want people to know that. <laughs> I think I, I just I wanted to hear that he was like you know elected prom king and just like you know I was not. his phone his like phones just blowing up with girls trying to get dates with him and stuff like that is that is that yeah. just my imagination I think that's just your imagination okay <laughs> well, it's good to know that climbing still doesn't um endow yeah. you it's... with a kind of success that is you know valorized and and celebrated in the culture and so forth all right, final question from that era and, and probably current era is how's Hobbs? Oh, he's doing great, actually. Um, cool. He's a professional runner now. At that time, he was kind of, I'd say he was more psyched on climbing. And then I think just each year, he got more and more psyched on running. And then last year, he was a senior. He's actually a year above me in school, so he was a senior last year. And he had this track season that was like, it was incredible. I mean, he, did, he ran, he broke so many like American high school records where he like ran a 357 mile indoors. And then like the previous high school record for the 1500 was 338. And then he did it in 334, which was like, oh, yeah, crazy. crazy. Yeah. Now he's like a full-time pro runner for Adidas. And it's been crazy to see him like slowly get more and more into running. I mean, he still loves climbing uh, and he still climbs a lot, but it, it's been really cool to see that happen. Yeah, right on. And and just to to fill that in is he was one of the guys of your age 
that you um, actually worked on the nose with, if I remember yeah. the stories, right? Yeah. So wrapping the thing yeah. and getting some of those pitches worked out. So yeah. Um, anyway, good to hear. Good to hear. But let, you want to move on now, Andrew? Are we ready? Yeah. 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 Okay, so cool. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about. Um, I'm sure Connor about, is. Yeah. He's like, Jesus Christ. After real, I mean, high school was the worst for most people. I don't know how you feel about it, but we're like making relive, relive these years. I mean, well, to be fair, I graduated like a month ago, so it still doesn't feel like I'm no, it doesn't feel like I'm no longer in high school, but also right. like my high school experience was very strange because like half of my sophomore year and my entire junior year was remote. Did it ever occur to you to, to, you know, skip a year, like not go right into college and, and, uh, and pursue the climbing lifestyle or, or, um, just make sense for you to just keep going through your schooling? I don't know. I mean, for me, like as much as I love climbing, I mean, I feel bad saying this, but at the end of the day, it is just, you know, a sport or just a hobby or, you know, I spend a lot of time doing it, but I feel like at some, to some extent, like my education is, you know, more important and, you know, I really do enjoy learning. And I think, although it would be really fun to take a year off, I think within a few months, I'd kind of be like, well, maybe I should challenge myself academically also. Yeah. And actually, I kind of remember you even as a 15 year old having really similar sentiments yeah about about school and about education and things like that so nothing's changed there yeah i don't i definitely don't want to give up my education for climbing because i I do really enjoy learning yeah so uh let's shift to some of the recent routes that you've been doing connor um you climbed empath um a sport climbing tahoe that was given 515A, I think, when Carla Traversi did the first ascent. But you, you'd climb that, clipping the bolts, and then just recently you did it on gear. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what drove you to choose this route to be a, a trad climb? I guess just for a broader context, I've been kind of doing a lot of climbs building at my base. And, you know, a lot of climbs that will, you know, maybe take like two sessions or three sessions, right? Even a few more, too. But I wanted like a longer term project, like something that would really push my limit. And for me, like right now, I'm like, yeah, I really want to try 515. And that, that was kind of what I was thinking. I was like, I want to do something that hard. But then at the same time, like there aren't very many in the US. And, you know, to travel overseas just to project the same climb over and over again does not seem the most appealing to me. So when I heard that Carlo did Empath and it was in Tahoe, I was like, sweet, a new 515 in Tahoe. Like that's going to be my project. That's going to be my long term one that I'm going to put in. A bunch of time to try to do to really push myself but then when i got there and started trying it i was able to kind of find some hand jamming beta and i ended up sending it in two weekends on sport it the climb suited my style a lot and i was able to kind of find some beta that for me made the cruxes a lot easier but even before i sent i you know had seen like oh there are gear placements here like and the day i sent i actually happened to have a rack with me because i wanted to check out the placements and that day i went up on top rope and kind of fiddled around with some placements and, you know, found some. And my goal shifted to that. It felt like sending on sport went from feeling like the end goal to feeling like a stepping stone to doing it on gear. Uh, so it just kind of naturally felt like the thing to do, I guess, for me. Yeah, I remember seeing footage of both, you know, Ethan climbing, I think Carla climbing, and then you climbing on it. And I remember thinking to myself, like, that's a that's a really different route that Connor's climbing. You just seem seem to have a different vision of of how that thing got climbed. So it's interesting that then you you went to uh doing it on gear. Now tell us a little bit about that process, you know, versus clipping the bolts. Like what did what did the process of getting it done on gear look like? 
and were you know was the gear solid was it did it become a little bit of a head point um what were we looking at with empath on gear so initially i was definitely just going up on top rope and figuring out like where the placements would be because i wasn't really sure if it would go uh but then when i started trying it i guess the difference i found was first off it was more mentally challenging because when i'm on bolts this isn't always the smartest idea but i never really think twice about if it's the bolt gonna hold i just you know that's not like the fall is never on my mind when i'm sport climbing i'm just focusing on the climbing but then when i was on gear and it's something i've been placing even if they were even like on the most solid placements i'm still like there still is like i'm still second guessing myself and then Physically, it felt harder because there were some spots where I had to kind of stop mid-crux or in kind of strenuous positions to place a cam. So I had to kind of pace the route a lot differently where like when I sent it on sport, I think I did the whole thing in like four and a half minutes. And most of that time was spent like at the rests resting. And it was kind of like sprinting between rests. But on gear, I really had to slow it down and kind of have a different pace because I had to be stopping to like fiddle in gear. So it felt a bit different in that respect. I mean, it was the same moves overall, except for I think there was, you know, one placement where I kind of had to do like something slightly different, where like I had to find this drop me that I hadn't done when doing it on support. But besides that, it had really been like just the same climb, but kind of more physically and mentally difficult. But even still, I mean, the first day back, like, because I ended up when I was trying it, I was trying it last summer. And then... I think in July, like early July was maybe my last session. Then it got too hot for the summer. And then the Caldor fire came. And then, so then this spring, my first session back, I actually sent it on top of wall, mock leading and placing all the gear. But then it took another three sessions to actually red point it. So it was definitely a bit of a process in that respect. Uh, tell us a little bit more about why it took three more sessions. Was it the... Yeah, t- what, what what was it that prevented you from doing it the next try? So the gear on that route is like generally very good, I'd say. There are a few placements that are a little blind. Uh, you, you, know, you can't really see them when you're placing them, but you just kind of have to trust that they're going to be good. And they are pretty good. But then up high, you get to this the top rest before the red point crux, and you get like, it was a black diamond point three, which is like a little bit shallow, but like still a pretty good placement. Like I've booked on it before, but it's definitely like a little bit shallow. and you know, it looks a little sketchy. And then you kind of have that last like crux boulder and you just kind of have to do that boulder. There's no gear in it. So you're going like a little ways above that cam and just committing to that boulder on lead when like that cam, it didn't feel like it wasn't a bad placement. Like, as I said, I've whipped on it before, but it just didn't feel 100%. So one interesting aspect of doing sport routes on uh, gear is that the bolts are still in the cliff. And so there's always this kind of like mental out that you could take, you know, where if you get scared or something or another, you, you, you know that there's a bolt either above or below you that you could kind of retreat to, so to speak. Did you find that to be mentally challenging to just avoid the bolts or did you just put them out of sight and mind? So when I sent, I didn't have any of the draws on the bolts. And I didn't take, I did have like one dog and draw on my harness that I could have used. But I mean, even the goes where I like kind of bailed, uh, so to speak, where I like I, you know, just took, I, I took on the gear um, instead of going to a bolt. I mean, so when I sent, I didn't have any of the draws on the bolts. Um, and I didn't take, I did have like one dog and draw on my harness that I could have used. Um, but 
I mean, even the goes where I like kind of failed, uh, so to speak, where I like I, you know, just took I I took on the gear um, instead of like going to a bolt. You know, a lot of times when we hear about people like, oh, I'm going to climb this thing on gear that was bolted originally, there's some sort of, you know, ethical statement involved, um, which I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that's not anything that you were necessarily thinking. It was more of a challenge. But how how did you sort of approach that with, uh, you know, communicating with the guys who have done the route to make sure that they realize you weren't after some sort of diss? Yeah, it was that extra challenge, like you said. And I mean, Carlo knew I was trying it on gear. I think he was just kind of like sick. That'd be cool if it went. So I don't think there was really any drama there, which I was right. very grateful about. And yeah, I know I've definitely heard of people doing sport routes on gear to make any sort of statement, but that just wasn't my goal. Yeah, it's good, good to hear um, that it was just about challenging yourself, and which has always been the thing in my mind with even the folks who do it and then, oh, I'm going to chop them. It's like, what's the point? You yeah, you, know, you had your I, challenge. You got what you wanted out of it. Like, what's the point yeah. of making some sort of bizarre vandalistic statement about yeah. you know, climbing ethics? <laughs> Agreed. And I actually like, I actually did get a few comments from people who were like, "Dude, chop the bolts," and I was like, "What?" <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it just didn't make any sense why you would, you know, it's this established sport climb. Like seven people have done it, and just because I wanted a slightly different challenge, that means you should you know, vandalize this route for everyone else who wants to try it. Like, it just didn't quite make sense. I I really like how it's kind of these two different challenges where like, you know, for future ascensionists, if they want like a hard sport climb, they can have it. And if they want a hard trad climb, they can have it. And it's both of it's there. And, you know, you can experience this incredible piece of rock in two different ways. I think that's pretty cool. One thing that came up was just about the grade of the route, you know, it was given this like you know, large grade of 515. It sounds like you found some hand jams that I've heard people say maybe makes the route easier. I don't know if you've weighed in with the grade one way or another. It seems like people are afraid to downgrade routes because they've, um, they feel like it's some kind of a, a slight against the person who had put the route up first, which I don't agree with that. I think that we should just be honest about what routes what the grades are and that if there's easier beta or if knee bars or uh, knee pads make roots easier, you know, we can just, we can acknowledge that and, and, and it can be reflected in the grade and yeah. so forth. And so that's kind of my two cents on that, but um, I'd love to hear your, your honest opinion about how hard this thing is. I think on a lot of routes, if you do the exact same beta as the first assumptionist and then downgraded, it can be seen as that. But I feel like in this one, like, I think that, you know, the, I did try the beta that the other guys were using and it felt really hard. So the slopers were a lot worse than they looked and it was pretty heinous. But given the beta I was able to do with the hand jams, it definitely did feel a bit easier, I'd say. And I do have some hesitations about like kind of reducing this climb to just a number. But at the same time, I think it's good to have that. So for me, for my style of climbing, given that that climb suits me perfectly and with the beta I was able to find, I think as a sport climb, it was no harder than maybe 14C. Um, that was just how it felt for me. Other people can feel differently and that's not like any sort of strong proposal, but I feel like doing it on gear was definitely a little bit of an extra challenge. I mean, I haven't done anything nearly that hard on gear, so I don't really have that much of a perspective, but you know, it definitely like, like I was saying earlier, it has that extra physical and mental element that it didn't have on bolts. So it felt like 14 D I'd say on gear. Um, but I guess that's just how it felt for me. Like I could see it being easier or harder. And 
hopefully someone more experienced than myself can go and add their ideas. It's an interesting debate because this is rarefied space. And so there aren't that many 514D trad climbs in the world. These questions, which are awkward to answer, are important in some way because they they allow us to understand like where the boundary is with you know trad climbing and yeah. uh, difficulty and so forth. And so it's I think your your pers- your honest perspective is really important for that reason. Yeah, and you know, like I said, for me, like fourteen C sport, fourteen D trad felt right. Yeah, like there aren't very many trad climbs that hard, so I definitely have trepidations with giving it that grade and officially saying like, hey, this is the grade I propose. This is just kind of my thoughts and my ideas. Um, and, you know, I welcome any other climber to come challenge that. Because like you said, I think the what I can think of in terms of hard track climbs, there's that one tribe which uh, Jacopo Larcher uh, didn't suggest a grade for. And I thought Carlo Traversi might have said Meltdown was like on the upper end of 14C, maybe 14D. I don't remember for sure. So that I could just be spreading it. Really. That's totally false. But yeah, there aren't very many of that grade. So I definitely don't want to, like, part of me is like, I don't want to be the one to right. do that. But <laughs> yeah, this is what it felt like. Right. It's, I mean, it's like, you don't want to pound your chest is what you're saying. It's like, you want to contribute something, but not, yeah, not pound your chest and say, I've done the hardest trad route in the world. Um, but it is, I mean, it is sort of a buried lead in the whole thing is that, Trad route, gear route, I, I kind of like to use those two words a little bit separately because of the approach of, of climbing something in a sort of sports style. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely one of the hardest gear routes in the world um, if, it, if yeah. it holds out even at 14C because that's just where those routes reside. Um, so it's pretty cool. And I mean, we, we, you know, we're talking about the grade. We're drilling down on that. But um, what do you think about it as a climb, as, as, as something that anybody who could climb at that level um, should seek out? Yeah, I mean, as both a sport route and a gear route, I think it's really is like one of the best ones around because I feel like most climbs of that difficulty have like some sort of manufacturing, whether it's like reinforcing a hold or either climbs with like, you know, chipped holds or, you know, glued holds. But this climb was like completely natural and it's like really beautiful, unique rock. It has like these weird granite like runnels and it's like pretty crazy, honestly, uh, that feature. and it's really fun to climb on and honestly yeah it's one of the coolest climbs around so would recommend 100 for anyone who wants to go try it so why don't you we switch gears and you can tell us about um your experience on the salafe wall which has um you know kind of like an interesting backstory with your dad doing the route just like days before you were yeah. born essentially yeah he topped out 90 hours before i was born actually after freeing it uh, which was uh, i was like pretty cool so I guess growing up, that's the El Cap route that's always been like kind of held a special place for me where I heard this story of my dad's journey on it. And, you know, he spent a lot of time on the route, really enjoyed it. And I mean, I don't even know all the stories of him on the route. And it's like, I feel like, you know, every few months I'll hear this like story of a different experience he had on it. And I'll just think like, wow, I haven't heard that before. And yeah, it's been a route that's like kind of always been high on my list. So I was pretty excited to do it. It was actually pretty funny because that weekend, it was late June, I'm pretty sure, like mid to late June. I just had assumed valley season was over. The climb wasn't really on my radar at that point. And I think I was planning on climbing in Tahoe that weekend. Uh, But then we looked at the weather forecast. We were like, hey, like the weather in the valley looks really good. So then we just kind of went up on it. And I was pretty surprised about that it went so well. 
I mean, the weather was perfect. It was even pretty cold on the wall, honestly. And the conditions were great, considering that it was June. Tell us about the style. And, and um, you know, you're, you're talking about your dad's having all these crazy experiences and wild experiences up there. Tell us a little bit about the experience and, and the specifics that happened up there and, and what that was like. It wasn't my first time on the route. It was two years ago when I was working triple direct. It kind of got a little wet. So I went and tried the Salafe. And I had one weekend where like the first day I repelled into the head wall to try that on top rope. And then the next day I, we climbed up from the bottom to uh, pitch 19, which is a whole thing I can get into later. And just to work that. And then the next weekend, we actually went for a send push and I got pretty close, but didn't end up sending. Uh, and that was about two years ago, I'd say. And then since then, I haven't been back on the route until the weekend we went up to send and just kind of went for it. And I was pretty psyched. I ended up doing every pitch except the headwall pitches first go. And then the headwall took me some time. But, you know, I ended up doing it in two pitches, not one, which, you know, again, that's something that to come back for uh, because doing it as one pitch would be really cool. Unfortunately, when I got to the anchor, the first pitch I had, I think, one cam left. So that wouldn't have gone too well. Uh, and I was pretty pumped, <laughs> Come too. Come on, it's steep. I mean, sure. Yeah, yeah. Just Whatever kidding. you say, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking about doing this thing in a push, right? Your guys are up there just for the day, or are you, are you spending the night up there? Oh, this push? Um, yeah. We did, we did over three days. So Okay, well, it was three it was a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Cool. But doing it today would be really cool. Why was it so surprising? I mean, in terms of, of doing well on it, considering that, I mean, grade wise, it's easier than the nose grade wise. Anyway, um, you know, wh why, wh why did you feel like you surprised yourself up there? Well, the nose, I, you know, worked the pitches and, you know, had it dialed and ready to go. The South, I hadn't been on the route in two years. I didn't remember any beta whatsoever on like any of the cruxes on it at all. So like, you know, I was pretty much just going up and you know, three days, it is a long time, but at the same time, like you can't, you know, say like at the start that pitch 19 had given me a lot of trouble. Like I wouldn't have had very many goes to figure that, to sort that out in order to have enough time higher up. So like, I just didn't really feel very prepared for it mm -hmm. in that sense. Like I had the fitness, but I didn't really know the route very well. So even though it is a, an easier grade than the nose, the nose I'd had so much more preparation on. What's pitch 19? Oh, okay. So Pitch 19, I, it might be pitch 15 in the new guidebook. I still call it pitch 19 because uh, that's what my dad called it. <laughs> but it's to the right of the monster off with. Uh, it's, a, right. it's a 13 seat corner. And Todd Skinner and Paul Piano, when they first read the route, they did that pitch. And it's, you know, one of the crux pitches of the route. Um, and I, I'd say it is the technical crux. It has like the hardest moves on the route. I mean, the head ball was more challenging for me, I guess, because it was because of the endurance aspect. But you know, pitch 19 does have the hardest moves on the wall. And I guess some of the later ascensionists, it kind of became the standard for later ascensionists to do the monster off with instead, which, you know, it's really cool. It's really impressive. It's an impressive free route on all cap, but it isn't the true Salafe in the way that it was first done, I guess. So like, I kind of wanted to do that original line, even though the other line is also really, really cool. And it's, you know, an amazing achievement to do. So that pitch, it's always been kind of intimidating, I guess, because I see like everyone skipping it. And like, I think my dad and Todd Skinner are like the only two to do it, maybe. Maybe a few other people have done it since then. No, I think Alex Holland might have done it in the past year. And there's probably a bunch of other people that I've heard, but I just don't know about who, who sent it. But I feel like I've heard of so few people doing that pitch that I've felt like, wow, like it must be hard. And then it turns out it's just kind of this one boulder problem that's pretty heinous. And I went up this year um, and this send push 
uh you know i didn't remember any of the beta at all so i was like okay i'll just go up like i'll go up until i fall then i'll just eight out and then you know try to move on top rope lower down and give it a go uh that was like my whole plan and then i got up there and i just kind of like just did one move then did the next move then did the next move and i was like wait i'm like actually kind of close and it was like did a few more moves and like ended up sending it somehow which i was that was probably the most surprising part for me of the ascent was doing that first go i guess to to elucidate the what you're what you're trying to get at is that that's the original salate line it was the original free line but i think since the huber sort of discovered the free rider um it's been pretty sort of de jour to cut over to the monster off with which yeah. were originally part of the free rider but um a lot of the salate free ascents have decided that was part of the salate um which I, it's always been something that kind of has been in my head, but obviously since I'm not a good enough climber to weigh in one way or the other, it's it's not something I've like piped on about. But it has been an interesting thing because those monster offwits are technically a part of a route originally called Bermuda Dunes that comes up from the bottom mm-hmm. and hits those. I know this because I've climbed Bermuda Dunes. And it, but it, but the big thing is it, it it takes like you just said one of the crux pitches, if not the crux pitch, out of the original free salate. Those are hard, but they're five eleven. Uh, versus I think like 13C or something that 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 other pitch gets and it it's always been this kind of like thing that just started happening without any sort of controversy but you know to to replace a 13C pitch with a 511 or two 511 pitches you know when you say it like that you're kind of like well well yeah that's a different route you know what I mean so um it's cool that you did I want to say Yuji did it too um, oh Yuji did that's cool I I mean I know that he, it stopped him on his his onside attempt because he, he there was oh, a okay. sort of there was a sort of fanfare onside attempt that he did and it it kicked his ass and so but I I want to say he he came back and did it but I don't know that for sure but it seems like he would be in the era and the type of guy that would have stuck to that pitch oh but, for sure yeah no, I would yeah. not be surprised at all yeah just to kind of like put it all in perspective of what you were kind of getting at. I kind of feel bad saying that, like, you know, oh, it's not the Salate, whatever, because sure. it sounds like I'm trying to, like, take away from these ascents of people who've skipped it. But, like, I mean, it's, you know, at the end of the day, they freed El Cap. They freed a hard route on El Cap. I don't know what you'd call that route, but, like, technically speaking, it's not quite the Salate, but, like, it's basically the Salate, but not quite. Right. But saying that, I feel like, makes me feel like, it makes me sound like I'm t- trying to trash talk these people, which I'm totally not. Yeah, I know. And that's why I kind of, like... I'm the one who's who's like talking about the the. I'll let you do that. Yeah, you. yeah, exactly. Um, I think I think we understand where you're getting at, but I too, I mean, it's something I've thought about a lot, having been up there on on all those pieces and parts of that climb at different times. It just, I mean, it's definitely like thirty feet to the left. And like pitch nineteen, like considering it gets done so little, it's a really good pitch. The ball bomb is really cool, and it's kind of got some like interesting movement where it almost feels like. A mini like that boulder problem almost feels like a mini changing corners the style of climbing where you like using pin scars in a shallow corner like that it's a little bit shorter and the holds are a little bit better it's a little sloppier but you know it kind of has that same style of climbing which is really cool i really enjoyed that pitch one thing that i'm struck by listening to you connor right now is just the the um the respect for climbing history that you have and and it's clearly a reflection just of the fact that you've got you know this direct connection with your dad being such a such a badass climber himself and you know telling you these stories and kind of instilling you with this history but one of the themes that comes up on this show a lot that chris and i often rail on is just 
the concern for being able to impart that kind of history and sense of respect for for like the difficult things that are kind of falling into the obscurity. And so I think that I'd love to just hear you talk about your um your reflection on your peers, like people your age who and how how they're consuming climbing media, how they're like kind of ingesting climbing history. Do you think that are like are you concerned about their sort of respect for the pitch 19s not just of the salafe but all over the world you know like those things that fall into like these these uh you know these black holes of history and and you know pages of magazines that are no longer published and you know sites that are no longer read and i'm trying to get a sense of like how you think about your peers like because you're in this unique position of being a person who's competes at comps who climbs really hard sport who can climb the hardest trad climbs in the world basically and who has this sort of appreciation in history for of the of climbing history through your dad but you know i think just through your upbringing and all of that so what's your take on your on your the people your age like where do you think that they're going do you think that they care about this shit are you concerned about it or or what's your general sense of that i guess i think that a lot of the kids my age, it's interesting because there's a bit of a dichotomy at the competitions where I notice some kids don't really know much about it. Where like, you know, I've met kids at the competition who don't even know what the nose is, for instance. But like, just really care about that, like gym climbing and that competition climbing, which is really cool because it's really amazing what these kids can do in the competitions. I get my butt kicked at them a lot at these competitions. But then there's also a lot of kids who, like, even if they don't try to climb very much themselves, they're very well-versed in the history. And, like, I guess Hobbs is a really good example um, we were talking about earlier, where when I was climbing with him on the nose, he knew more about the route than I did. Like, he, he knew, like, so much about the history. So I don't necessarily feel very concerned about the history getting lost. I guess there's, like, some people who just aren't as interested in it, which is fine for me. Well, I, I, I guess, you know, like thinking about like what you want to do next in climbing, I mean, you're, you've, you can clearly like choose whatever route it is that you have your heart set on and, uh, and crush it within a couple of weekends. What do you think is interesting right now? Like what, what are you interested in? Like talking about obscure pitches on El Cap, like lurking fear hasn't had a second free ascent. Is that something that you want to do? Or I guess, what are you thinking about? I've kind of always said this, but if it's a free route on El Cap, it's on my radar somehow. Those climbs on El Cap, I, I'd love to try, especially like Lurking Fear or something like that that hasn't seen a repeat since it was first done. How many years ago was that? 20 years ago, maybe slightly less? Yeah, probably slightly less, but a long, a, yeah. a lifetime of a Connor Herson. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or nearly and, anyway. <laughs> yeah. But also like I am going to college this fall, so... I don't really know what the workload's going to be like for me, um, or I know what the workload's going to be like. I don't know how I'm going to be able to manage it. Uh, but if I'm able to manage it, I definitely like to keep going out there. But if not, I mean, that's okay, because like I was saying earlier, academics mean a lot to me. And if I can get out during my school breaks and climb, um, I would be really happy there too. But um, right now, I don't have any like distinct goals where like, for pretty much this whole like past year, I've been thinking like, yeah, I'm path on gear. That's like the one I want to do. But then, which is funny because actually considering how much I've like thought about doing it, I didn't spend that much time out at the cliff. I think it was eight days at the cliff last year, then four this year, descend. 
a lot of times like these projects that take me a while i just kind of like see them in passing and they look really sick and i end up trying them and so it will definitely just be something like that where are you going to school uh i will be going to stanford this fall you know everyone's talking about going away for college stanford's actually closer to my house than my middle school was um <laughs> it's like yeah like a 20 minute bike ride or something maybe long bike ride but um yeah it's pretty close by so and what are you saying what are you studying um i'm not entirely sure yet okay uh you don't have to at stanford you don't have to declare until the end of sophomore year so mm -hmm. i'm hoping to explore a bunch of fields and you know, see what's interesting cool uh i mean for me i really enjoyed kind of math and science classes so pursuing that further and like maybe in engineering classes that could be really cool but the bottom line is i don't really know yeah so connor we just asked you about the you know your knowledge of sort of the history at least in in yosemite um i don't know how how far it extends into the greater sort of climbing history but if you could maybe just reflect a little bit which you did in your last episode about this relationship you have with your dad i think in the context of the history that he knows and he was part of and you're four years older than last time um so tell me a little bit of, again about uh what do you think that relationship brings to your climbing and and may maybe you could give us a sense of how you think he feels about um your accomplishments as well um, because I think it's a, it's a very unique relationship, um, especially considering how, you know, the performance level that your dad had, um, when he was, uh, in his prime as well. So yeah. Could you reflect a little bit about, about what that means to you having, um, your dad as this motivator, this partner, this supporter, and how you think he feels about, um, your accomplishments? Yeah, I will. But I kind of want to extend this to actually both my parents because, uh, I feel like it often gets publicized because my dad is the one who goes up on big walls with me. It gets publicized right. a lot that. You know, he's the one who supports me through all this and he's the main climber. But I mean, my mom, she climbs so much and she has really supported me a lot. Actually on Empath, like my first few days back this season were with her and she came out with me quite a bit to that cliff. So I guess it's kind of like both my parents. I think they're just, they're just like that I enjoy the sport that they do, I think. They never really forced me to get into climbing, but they just kind of hoped I would and I did. So I think they're just psyched for that. And I'm very lucky that they're able to support me and without their support, like, I would not have done any of the, I would not be on this show, right? Like, I feel like a lot of teenagers, especially, especially like my age or even slightly younger, like, I feel like there's a stereotype where the teenagers always like get into fights with their parents and get into arguments and like want more freedom. And I never really had any of that. So <laughs> I wonder if the climbing, if, you know, sharing that played a role in it. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't, but I don't know if that answers your question, but. Well, let me be a little more specific um, and see if we get something out of that. Um, it, you know, you, you, you talked about your dad freed the South a fairly early on in its history, you know, 90 hours before you were born. Did he express, you know, any sort of specific feelings about being up there and having you, you know, send this thing that he had put so much heart and soul into, you know, was probably one of the crowning, one of the crowning achievements of his free climbing career. Um, did he, did he get any specific about, um, about how he felt about you sending and, and enjoying that experience with you. I think he was pretty psyched. Actually, <laughs> um, it was really nice that he was supporting me on it because I actually topped out on Father's Day, oh. uh, which is pretty great. Um, it's like a lifetime and, movie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the fact that he was willing to go like jug of this climb for just my project on Father's Day was very, very nice. And I mean, you know, do you know his van? 1985 VW. Mm -mm. like ran again 
he uh, he always said like, oh, I won't let you drive it till you do the Salafe. So he let me drive it now. He lets me drive it. So. <laughs> <laughs> So you got a you got a, a ride out of this. Yeah, well, I always had a ride in the van. I just wasn't allowed to drive it. <laughs> it's undeniably happening everywhere you go. Someone posts a photo of a place that looks dope, and now everyone else wants to go there too. But not all crags can handle the hordes. Some places, while not exactly top secret, are protected in some way by the locals who wish to not blow them up on social media. Is it too much to ask? Is it for selfish reasons, just to keep their little spots to themselves and their group of friends? Or are there legitimate concerns around keeping Craig's secret? On the latest bonus episode of The Runout, Chris and I delve into this topic and lock horns with our guest, Sam Elias. Sam's a professional climber who's been outspoken about gatekeeping, elitism, and other issues related to keeping Craig's secret. If you want to listen to this debate, you'll need to join us on Patreon. And for what amounts to about five bucks a month, you'll be able to hear this bonus episode and others, as well as keep our podcast going. So remember, whichever side of this issue you fall on, whether you think we need to get elitism out of climbing, or you think we need to do a better job of keeping Craig's secret, just know that Chris and I only care to hear your opinion if you're actively supporting our show. On today's final bit, we feature an eyewitness account of a major rockfall event in the Rocky Mountain National Park. This is Jeremy Fullerton giving you an account of the historic rock slide that happened up in Rocky Mountain National Park this past Tuesday. Uh, the day started out as any normal day with my buddy Mike Weiss, William, Levy, and myself all going up to climb in Upper Upper. As we approached the climbing area Upper Upper, we realized that the south face of Hallett's was a little bit more active with rockfall than it normally was. And after about a few hours of climbing up there, we realized what we were going to see was one of the most historic rockfalls that Rocky Mountain National Park had ever seen. As I was climbing an attempt on a project on the low of Whole lot of Love, we heard the ground and felt the ground start to rumble below our feet. As my buddy Mike Weiss and Levy were outside the cave, they started hooting and hollering, yelling, and we knew something crazy was happening out there. Once I fell off the project after giving a go and kind of just stepping off because I felt unsafe in the current situation with how much rockfall and debris sounded like it was out there and how much noise that Mike Weiss and Levy were making, I got off the boulder and ran outside the cave with William and luckily William had his phone on him because we were able to capture one of the craziest rock falls that we all four decided would be the craziest thing that we might ever witness in our lives. As we looked up at the face, we saw two apartment complex sized boulders parting off the, the cliff. Essentially the whole mountain was just tumbling towards us and we were quickly engulfed in a cloud of smoke and debris. Once we deemed it unsafe to be there anymore, we just started running as fast as we possibly could over the talus. I was in my climbing shoes, nimbly trying to work my way through the talus. Mike was barefoot. Our buddy Leffy had one shoe on and a sock. And luckily, William 
had his approach shoes on, so he was able to go a bit more nimbly across the talus. After about a few minutes of the rock fall and the smoke and debris cleared, we decided it was super unsafe for us to head back for a gear without having someone looking at the new rock scar. So me being a dad coming up here in September, the three of them looked at me and decided I would be the one that should be far enough away just in case if there was another massive rock slide. If something were to happen to someone, it would be them instead of me. As the three of them went and started to gather our gear and throw the crash pads out of the cave, I remember looking up at this other part of the apartment complex size boulder, cliff, mountain. Yeah, I would call it part of a mountain, start to break away. And I quickly yelled at the top of my lungs for them all to run out of the cave as they started running towards me, I directed them down Canyon to try to get out of the line of rockfall. But luckily, that part of the cliff had hit a boulder and it redirected the, the path in which that the cliff rock face was falling. After another few minutes of collecting ourselves and deciding... It was safe enough for us to grab our gear. They quickly just headed down into the cave again, worried that another massive rock fall might come. They decided for me to stay back and keep an eye on the rock fall scar. After about a few moments, they got gathered all the gear, quickly got it to me. I changed into my approach shoes, and we click, quickly ran about a, another quarter of a mile away from the rock fall. As we sit there laying on the rock, we realized how lucky we had gotten reminiscing on what and if and how we would have gotten out of there if we weren't able to gather our gear that got covered in a mount of rock that was not safe to gather the gear at all. As we sit there on the rock, we decided that area had lost a significant amount of high-quality boulder problems, but as we mourned the loss of those boulder problems, we just realized how lucky we were to be able to walk away unscathed from the historic rock fall that happened that day. Looking back, we should have run a little bit sooner, but it was something so mesmerizing, something that we'll only see once in our whole entire lifetimes that it was hard to not gaze up at the beauty and the destructive power that the mountains have. After another while of sitting there, I called my fiance, told her about the event, and we then decided it was time to move to a different area, kind of make the most out of the rest of the day by climbing another boulder and head down the hill and at that point we got down to Estes Park and had what tasted like the most perfect burger that we've ever had in our lives just thinking that we wouldn't have had this opportunity if one of us got hit by one of the boulders and we were mourning the loss of a friend or something like that and yeah that's kind of the short version of uh the craziness that we saw that day and 
super glad that we all made it out and that we can look back on this time as uh, just something that we deemed once a lifetime experience rather than mourning the loss of one of our friends. You've just finished another episode of the Runout Podcast. I'm Andrew Bisharat, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And I'm Chris Caloose, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com. <laughs> Dude, come on. <laughs> because Chris at runoutpodcast.com is where emails go to die. That's true. We also have a Patreon that you can support our show at, and it's runoutpodcast.patreon.runoutpodcast.com. No, no, no. It's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. Yes. <laughs> if you dream of sending 514 every month for the rest of your life, <laughs> you should go and sign up at patreon slash runoutpodcast.com. No, dot pod, com slash runoutpodcast. Something like that. Give us some money. Give us some money.